Welcome back, everyone. This is episode three of the Heart Podcast. On today's episode, we focus on critical race theory, intersectionality, and anti-racist leadership that stems from anti-racist teaching, scholarship, and positionalities. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, and Nipmuc peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. We are really excited about our guest for this episode. With us today, we have Dr. Frank Tewitt, who is currently the Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer at the University of Connecticut, as well as a professor at the NEAC School of Education. His scholarship focuses on diversity and inclusive excellence in higher education, both in the United States as well as in the Netherlands and post-secondary institutions across Europe. We also have Dr. Lori Pan Davis, who is currently department chair of and professor in the Department of Educational Studies at The Ohio State University. Her program area is higher education and student affairs, and her research focuses on African Americans in higher education, critical race theory, campus diversity initiatives, girls and women of color in educational and social context, as well as college student development and graduate preparation. Thank you for being here with us today, Dr. Tuit and Dr. Pan Davis. We are honored to have you as guests for so many reasons, but especially because in our previous episodes, a few of the scholars have mentioned that your role in their lives has been very important. Your scholarship, your leadership, your mentorship has played a significant role in their scholarship and in their teaching career, especially around anti-racist teaching. So we're grateful for all of the leadership and support you have provided and for being willing to be a part of the conversation today so we can continue to spread that wisdom forward. So thank you for being here. We are excited to learn from you and engage in this conversation. To get us started, Frank, what are your thoughts on what anti-racist teaching means and what it looks like in your classroom? Thank you for the opportunity. So um, I'm really, when I'm thinking about constructing classes, really trying to make sure students have a range of opportunities to center their lived experiences in the classroom and to deconstruct and learn from those experiences with a focus on race and racism. So I'm utilizing a range of activities. For example, I asked my students to do a critical racial autobiography where they uh, deconstruct their experiences in educational environments through the lens of race and racism. I asked them to do an identity, a social identity pie activity where they look at their uh, different dimensions of their identity uh, as it relates to multiple and interlocking aspects. I asked them to um, engage in case studies and, and policy analysis. I mean, I'm trying a lot of different ways to get them to think through critically and develop their consciousness around race and racism. Yeah, um, I, I've done some of the same things. It's interesting to be thinking about teaching. I haven't taught in so long. Um, but when I had an opportunity to teach this past fall, you know, the same sort of, you know, passion and excitement about teaching came and I had to I have, I had another a faculty member, uh, Mark Guerrero, um, teaching with me. He's like, this might be too much for incoming students, right? And so when I'm thinking about anti-racist teaching, honestly, a lot of it in my head, I don't call it anti-racist teaching. I'm thinking about critical race teaching. Um, and, and for me, it is about 
purposefully centering race as I'm planning the class. So I'm thoughtful about who students are ex exposed to in the syllabus. I'm thoughtful about classroom policies. Um, and uh, similar to what Frank said, making sure that students have an opportunity to one, co-construct uh, knowledge that they're engaged in, you know, the consciousness raising that happens as we, you know, discuss or, you know, look at documentaries or, you know, talk about articles or engage with guest speakers. Um, but regardless of the content, I'm always going to ask students, okay, so, you know, this author doesn't, you know, really um, deconstruct racism, you know, they're not really talking about it, but based upon our current sociopolitical context, you know, what does this mean? Like, how do we, how do we, how would you help a policymaker understand this using a racialized lens, right? Who, you know, is falling through the cracks when we talk about this policy or this process on a college campus, who gets left out, who's at the table, who's making decisions. And, you know, inevitably we talk a lot about whiteness as well, how it shows up and you know, how do you um, uh, work to dismantle it and what are the challenges? And so to me, uh, anti-racist teaching and critical race teaching, I mean, I think some people might describe them as different, but to me, when I engage in critical race practice in the classroom as a teacher, to me, that is anti-racist teaching, or one way to approach anti-racist teaching. Yeah, I, I, just to add to that, absolutely influenced by critical race pedagogy and the ways in which folks try to operationalize critical race theory through teaching. That's fantastic. Thank you both for sharing your insights. And I love the fact that you both incorporate contemporary issues in the conversation of advancing anti-racist teaching practices. You know, something that, that came up in, in episode two and something that I've been exposed to, Milagros and I have been exposed to in the conversations that we've been having with really brilliant faculty across the country is that it, it seems that there are individual initiatives, very awesome initiatives that incorporate anti-racist teaching practices. However, the systemic issue is still there in, in which departments as a whole seem to not really be incorporating this amazing movement. So based on your experiences, Frank and, and Lori, like, have you experienced pushback in your anti-racist teaching practices in incorporating that pedagogy? Yeah, what, what has just been your experiences on, on a department level, kind of taking it outside the classroom and just looking at it systematically? Um, I can start. Um, so how I am in the classroom is how I am as an academic leader. You know, it's how I am as a parent. I don't, you know, code switch and, you know, become different people in different contexts. And so as a department chair, of course, race is always, you know, at the forefront. Other identity markers and, and systems are as well. Um, but it's interesting. I just received, I, they did a 360 review um, of me. And some of the comments said she focuses too much on diversity and equity, right? <laughs> And I'm like, uh, you did see my CV before I got hired. Um, and so I'm sure I'm the first one who, as a department chair, sent out a whole, you know, email to the faculty and department about um, Frederick Douglass's speech 
and the 4th of July. And I'm probably the only one who sent something about uh, state-involved killings of Black people. And you know what I'm saying? Like, I I don't try to hide that. Um, and I didn't try to hide, I, I, I made sure they knew who they were hiring. And so I know that that upset some faculty um, because they haven't gotten to a point where they understand that all of those things factor into how I'm also making decisions on tenure and how I'm making decisions about search committees and how I'm making decisions on, uh, you know, the, the policies and um, uh, how money is uh, dispersed, you know, from the budget, like all of those things are shaped by um, this lens that I have. And I think that, so there's the pushback in the um, review that I received, which is fine. Um, I think it, there's also subtle pushback, right? This, you know, when I come into a space, I, I want to change it for the better. Like I want to elevate. I don't want us to be stagnant. I don't want us to stay in the same place. And we have students who are very vocal saying they're tired, right? Um, but to me, sometimes the pushback is the system in and of itself, right? And so, for example, if a faculty member says something off the cuff in the classroom, I can address it to a certain extent, but there are also university policies and procedures and things that have to happen, right? Like, how do you, and I think that's the tension I deal with all the time. How do I deal with you know, faculty behaviors, sometimes students' behaviors that if I was just a faculty member, I would be like, you are wrong, you did, you know what I'm saying? But the, the university says due process and, you know, and all of those things. And so I think that's the tension that I feel with, with the system in and of itself, because I know racism when I see it, when I hear it, when I feel it. And I have a university system that says, okay, you can see, hear and feel it, but this is the process. And sometimes that process is long but I think when we're talking about racism, there should be greater urgency. Um, and so that, that's how I'm thinking about pushback. That and then just people who, you know, want me to be a sanitized department chair, which I'm not. So. Yeah, I, I heard the same critiques at my old institution. And I imagine I'll start to hear them here as well that I focus too much on diversity. And more recently, I focus too much on race. All Frank cares about is race and racism, right? And it's odd because uh, my full-time job for the last eight years has been to focus on diversity as, as a, a CDL. So even when you are hired to do those roles, you subject yourself to the critique of, of, of being too aggressive. And, and, and I think for me, that just comes with the territory that uh, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're going to encounter resistance, right? Because you're disrupting business as usual. You're trying to change the culture in a particular place. And, and institutions have, have a way of being self-replicating. And when you try to disrupt that, uh, you subject yourself to higher levels of critique. Um, from a classroom perspective, it's interesting because I've always been intentional about uh, asking my students to critique the institutions they study in, right? And so I am, I am, as someone described it, giving them the matches and the tools to uh, really de deconstruct the environment and doing it in intentional ways. So, for example, a, a asking class to cr critique a statement that the institution put out and encouraging them to send their, their critique to directly to the chancellor uh, at my previous institution. So there are ways in which uh, we 
by what we choose to do as a form of pedagogical approach can also subject us to uh, that. The other thing I would say is, uh, and I imagine this is the case for Laurie as well, our classes uh, don't always align with our colleagues in the way that we approach teaching. And so I feel like we empower our students to when intentionally developing their critical consciousness. They don't only use it in our classes, they use it in the other classes they go into. And so over time, I've seen my, my colleagues uh, have concern about the types of questions and the way students are engaging them in, in other classrooms. And, and I've used that as a way to say, well, we need to get alignment around these things and, and students are doing what I am training them to do. Uh, so either we're gonna figure it out or we're gonna continue to have these kind of frictions as they evolve. Yeah, I was just gonna add, I think the other, the other way resistance comes is through you know, our students and higher ed programs, you, know, you have assistantships. And so folks are going over to student life. And so I'm in the classroom, we're talking about student development theory and theory to practice. And I'm having them you know, critique the theory and problematize the field and all these other pieces. And you know, it feels good in the classroom. And then they go over to their assistantship in student activities and the director, you know, is like, what is this? You know, or, or doesn't understand. And so I think there's also, um, I don't know if, if you call it a lag or resistance, but these students are being trained in a particular way that their supervisors haven't been trained. And so they feel the resistance and, you know, have often asked, well, you know, how do I do this? You know, I know that how we're planning this is wrong. You know, how do I navigate the fact that my supervisor, you know, it doesn't either doesn't know about this or doesn't care about it. And so we talked about it in the classroom, but I'm, I'm, I'm so committed to helping students understand, I want you to graduate, right? I, I want you to graduate use this information for when you get your first job, right? Um, not when you are, uh, a, you know, a, a GA in student life, right? You're not even at the table. So like preserve that energy, strategize now for how you wanna go into your first professional position or, you know, a senior position if you're doing a PhD or EDD or something like that. No, that's, that's fantastic. I actually was going to ask a question right in that direction because I have had experience too of students developing a critical consciousness, a critical understanding of systems of power, and then they go to assistantships and you know, there's a lot of tension between those um, experiences they have there in the classroom. So my question, what's unique about the two of you, there's a lot of things that are unique about the two of you, but in particular, you both are amazing anti-racist teachers and you also are administrators in higher And so I'm wondering, what do you think to this problem that we're naming right now about that tension, whether it's cross courses in a curriculum, in a program, in a department, or cross ex um, curricular experiences like courses and internship, what do you think is one thing you think institutional leaders could do to elevate or cultivate an institutional culture where anti-racist teaching could thrive inside and outside of the classroom? Like if you could name one thing that would really move the needle on that, what would that be based on your experience? Well, um, Besides hiring the two of you and trying to duplicate <laughs> you over and over again. 
Um, one initiative that's going on right now um, in our college, um, it's, it's um, going to be piloted next year, is um, this opportunity. Uh, so we have the regular um, uh, student evaluation of instruction and faculty will have an opportunity to opt in to another evaluation that focuses specifically on how they incorporate you know, uh, issues of equity in the classroom. Um, and so students, you know, I, I think at some point it'll become mandatory or become incorporated into the larger um, review. But for now, here's an opportunity for all of these, you know, after everything that happened this summer, you know, every, every, every white person was crunk about, you know, I want, I want to pull it together, I want to learn. And so here's an opportunity to, you know, see how many of them participate in it? How many are willing to get uh, critiqued on their teaching and what was missing and how they, you know, missed the mark on um, equity? Uh, so that that's one thing. Um, the other thing I think has great potential. Um, should we have a new president? Um, and I, I like the commitment that she's showing right now, um, but she really does have a lot of power to, you know, make things mandatory across the university. I mean, Ohio State has like 68,000 people, right? But as, as an institution that's so large, the racial equity work happens in pockets, right? Um, and I think she has a unique opportunity as president to, you know, either charge our chief diversity officer, who's James Moore, or some other entity with really doing this work more strategically rather than in pockets. Um, so I think that would be helpful on our campus because everybody's on different pages where racial diversity is concerned. Um, and then I'll say the other thing that's been really uh, interesting here or that I think has been really great. Um, you, you all remember when the Wells Fargo CEO was just like, it's just too hard to find black talent, right? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think it's pretty awesome that our Dean is really, he's unapologetic about hiring people of color, right? Um, he will do it. And amazing he, people of color too. Yeah, he, he's mm -hmm. like, we getting ready to, you know, storm higher ed and, you know, take everybody's people. But anyway, uh, he's really passionate about it and now, you know, other deans are looking at what's happening in this college and questioning, well, you know, if he can find them, you know, why aren't we here? And I think our president will also see that. Like, if it's happening in this college, it needs to happen in this college, this college, and this college. And here's how I'm going to incentivize you um, to do it. So um, that that's sort of my perspective um, on some of the, I guess, scaling up uh, uh, racial equity work. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I share Lori's thoughts on this. I think we have an obligation to figure out how to embed these uh, efforts into the systems and structures that drive university life. They can't be uh, add-ons or siloed or even some folks refer to them as pockets of innovation because it really doesn't change uh, the overall approach to business. So uh, our ability to embed it into the to the day-to-day -day life and in real concrete ways is important. So an example is um, thinking about, uh, I have the responsibility to review all of the academic units and their diversity plans. Uh, we've just participated in that process of providing them direct feedback using 
their goals and their aspirations as the things that will hold them accountable to, right? Mm -hmm. This is not us imposing that, right? And so there's an opportunity to really inform departments because if we don't do it at the, at the unit level, at the college level or the university level, then the folks who are doing this work will be, um, you know, again, penalized for doing it in ways because they're not following uh, whatever embedded uh, norms are, are there. So having departments do curriculum audits to see the ways in which uh, their courses are aligned with their aspirations around advancing anti-racist learning, right? Specifically, I think the other thing that I try to keep in mind is uh, this concept of capacity, uh, willingness, and, and readiness, right? That we, we have to um, uh, meet institutions where they are, meet departments where they are, and, and figure out how to push them to that next stage. And, and that process sometimes can, as I think Milagros is coming to appreciate, take a little bit longer than we would like. Um, and, and so um, I think the commitment has to be uh, for the long haul. Um, that doesn't mean we don't try to stop uh, immediately the injustices where we're seeing them, but, but keeping in mind that this is a process. Uh, and I wanna connect up our previous conversation with this as well, as we were talking about sending students out to different parts of the institution or to the workforce. Uh, I try to remind them that the, the knowledge we're trying to help them co-construct is, is, is a tool it's a, I think of it as a weapon for change and it has to be used um, in ways that will advance uh, the goals that we have. And, and so there's, a, there's a, a process there that I think we all have to uh, wrap our heads around in terms of what does it mean to, to be engaged in this work that will result in real concrete change. Well, I think, um, you know, this has been really insightful because you, I really appreciate that you all are giving, you know, insights in terms of um, inside the classroom and also looking at it from an institutional, you know, perspective. And, um, you know, just to kind of wrap up our conversation, I'm wondering, both of you do research using critical race theory as well as intersectionality um, as lenses for the work that you do. And we're wondering what advice might you give to people who want to keep doing this work, and that advice might differ. You might have a certain advice for faculty of color who want to keep moving um, the needle, and if, um, advice that you might have for, like uh, Lori, like you said, people who have um, awakened their consciousness around this uh, um, issue and want to start doing more around anti-racist work. What would you say um, you know, to them in terms of getting started or advancing this in their classrooms and beyond? Frank, could you kick us off? Sure, I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. I think first I wanna to speak to uh, the folks who are new to this work um, and who are eager to, to do something, um, there has to be a level of critical self-work before attempting to engage in anti-racism work. Uh, I think uh, as I referred to it else, elsewhere, this, this temporary period of wokeness is, is, is helpful in some ways because it's brought folks to the table um, who perhaps wouldn't have got there on their own. Uh, and the fact that they're at the table is a good thing, but we have to be careful. We've already seen evidence that 
folks who haven't done the work can actually undermine their efforts to address anti-racism anti-racism or to be anti-racist. Uh, and so uh, those folks have to do that work. Uh, for those of us who, who've been engaged in the work, one of the things I found uh, really helpful recently uh, in, this, in this late stage in my career is to step outside of the US context. Uh, it has really helped me to think about the impact of race and racism uh, from a much more intersectional uh, perspective. Uh, the work in the Netherlands that I've been doing and looking at, at the ways in which people go through their day and depending on which aspect of their identity is, is salient. You can go through seven different meetings and feel attacked in seven different ways, right? So if you're a migrant uh, student with a racial background, uh, depending on gender and, and class, whatever meeting you go into can have a different impact depending on who you're engaging with. And I think that's true here, but for some reason, it, for me, it wasn't as obvious and, and being outside of the US context helped that. Um, I, I think going off of that, you know, outside of the US context, the thing that just immediately popped into my mind was um, the Dean at the um, School of Architecture at CUNY, uh, Leslie Lyko, I think, who resigned after a year. And, you know, in, in the uh, news reports, one of the things she said is that, you know, racism is everywhere, right? Um, certainly in the US, but that in the US, it's just different, right? And um, the, the way Black people are treated, um, particularly Black women, you know, and, it, and she said she was not prepared for it, right? And so um, I think for anybody trying to, you know, engage in this work, you have got to be prepared. You know, you, you have got to be ready. Um, and, and, and so I agree with what Frank said about just doing the self-work um, and understanding that uh, just because you're a person of color doesn't mean you always get it. Just because you're a white person doesn't mean that necessarily that you don't get it, but that either way, it, it requires work and the work can't be a performance, right? You can't turn it on at work, turn it off, you know, when you go home. It needs to be, you know, uh, it's like a lifestyle change. It needs to be um, uh, a part of who you are. Um, and to understand that it, it, it just involves so many mistakes, right? Like you, what part of it is learning how to say you're sorry and learning how to learn from the mistakes that you'll make. Um, and it's just, to me, it's just a daily grind. And I think for people on the outside looking in, you know, who, who want to be a part of this, it looks like it is just you know, uh, why well, I want to be like that, or I want to do that. And then they get in and it's like, not what you thought. And so, uh, you know, just be ready. Um, and I think the, uh, when, I, when I mentioned the performance piece, I think the other thing that came to mind is just these people who are pretending to be black, you know? I don't understand that, but for some reason, I think for some people, oppression is attractive and or being a part of it feels attractive. Um, and so I just would encourage people as they're thinking about it, 
don't get in this so that you can, you know, look like you're just, you know, the, the best activist and um, you're speaking out and all of that. I, I don't like performance. Like do, everybody has their own way of being activist and engaging in anti-racist work. Do it from what feels right for you, not what you see somebody else doing and you mimicking it. That was beautifully said, beautifully said. Just want to thank uh, Dr. Patton Davis and Dr. Tuitt for your, your incredible words of wisdom today and your honesty. Uh, we really appreciate the foundational anti-racist work that you've both conducted while also paving the way for students, educators, and administrators to develop a sense of urgency regarding this work. For those of you interested in additional resources offered by the University of Connecticut, check out www.futurelearn.com. On March 14th, there will be a new online course on anti-Black racism in America, and it's offered by Dr. David Embrick. On April 11th, there will be an online course on the Future Learn platform focused on Black agency, resistance, and resilience, offered by Dr. Sharday Davis. Feel free to check out more information on the website, www.futurelearn.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to access the episode transcript and references to literature and media that were mentioned during the episode, please visit cetl.uconn.edu and click on the Heart Podcast banner. Stay tuned for episode four, which will focus on anti-racist teaching and professional preparation. Joining us for that conversation will be Dr. Grace Player from the University of Connecticut, Dr. Michael Funk from New York University, and Dr. Bridget Kelly from the University of Maryland. Before we go, we'd like to extend our deep appreciation to Henry Sayu for his time and support in the development of our podcast episodes. Henry is an undergraduate at UConn studying political science who is working with us in the Office for Diversity and Inclusion. Lastly, we'd also like to thank the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut because it takes a village and it takes heart.